to Hear the Word of God, the online and broadcast teaching ministry of the Rev. Eric Alexander. Our fourth uh, evening studying the Epistle to the Hebrews, and so far we have discovered in chapter 1 that the writer of the Epistle is demonstrating here and throughout the whole of the letter indeed, the supreme and surpassing glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. In a sense, that is the great theme of Hebrews, the surpassing glory and greatness of Jesus, particularly in chapter 1, by comparison with the angels. And it seems as if this had been a particularly important thing for these Hebrew Christians to whom he is writing, who have obviously been both confused and discouraged and are in danger of various kinds which the apostle recognizes. And they have been suffering under a teaching concerning angels which tended to detract from the solitary glory which belongs alone to the Lord Jesus Christ. And wherever you find anything tending to do this, the writer of the epistle to the Hebrews has this burning pastoral concern to draw people back from this dangerous position where Jesus is in some sense being robbed of his glory. Now that's a marvelous kind of sensitivity to have and it's a sensitivity the writer of Hebrews has. You know how we so often say, oh I'm sensitive, particularly sensitive about this, that and the other. The great sensitivity, beloved, that we need to develop by God's grace is a sensitivity to anything that would detract from the solitary glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, either in our thinking, or in our emotion, or in our living and action. Now from scripture, the writer of Hebrews demonstrates conclusively the supremacy of Jesus over angels and every other created order in verses 5 to 13 of Hebrews 1. His comparisons are these, roughly speaking, the angels are servants. Are they not servants? Ministering spirits is how he describes them. He makes his angels, verse 7, winds and his servants flames of fire. They are servants, Christ is the Son. For to what angel, verse 5, did God ever say, Thou art my Son? The angels are subjects. Christ is the Sovereign. Of the Son, he says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The angels worship, you see, at the end of verse 6, when he brings the first begotten into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. They do homage, they are subjects, but Christ is the sovereign. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The angels are creatures who have been created by God, but Christ is the creator. They are God's angels whom he has made, but Christ is the creator. And so he speaks of him in verse 10, Thou, Lord, didst found the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of thy hand. Now it's all brought to a conclusion, really, this section in the last verse of chapter 1, 
where the writer says that the angels are ministering spirits sent forth by God to serve. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to serve? And the really striking thing is, do you notice, who they are sent to serve? In verse 14, they are sent forth for the sake of those who are to obtain salvation. Now that's one of the descriptions this writer uses for the people of God. And isn't it an amazing thing to think that God has created these angelic beings who are a higher form of creation at this juncture than man. But they have been created in order that they might serve those who are to obtain salvation. So God has created the angels. His destiny for the angel creation, if you like, is that they might minister to those who are to obtain salvation. Now he is thinking, of course, of the ultimate consummation of salvation at the end of the age. But the angelic beings God has created, of which scripture has so much to say, are created to minister to us. Now the, we have the evidence of that in the experience of our Lord Jesus Christ as our forerunner. You know how many times in this epistle Jesus is spoken of as the forerunner or pioneer. Now Jesus knew what it was to have angels coming to minister to him. Do you remember at various periods in his life when he was under pressure and testing. When he was in the midst of Gethsemane, he knew the angel messengers of God coming to minister to him. And so did various figures in the New Testament, like Peter, for example, in Acts 12. Do you remember how Peter knew what it was to have this ministry of an angel to him? And Acts 12, 7, when Peter is in prison, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hand, and the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And then he said to him, Beautiful touch this, the care, the ministry of angels to the children of God. Wrap your mantle around you, he says, and follow me. Chilly outside tonight, Peter, he says. And the caring of the angel is here, you see. Put your mantle round about you and follow me. And he went out and followed him, and he did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. There is a whole ministry of angels that need to take more seriously, I think, than we do, which is designed for those who are to obtain salvation. Now, when we turn to chapter 2, the first four verses of the second chapter are really a pause in which the writer is saying, and they are a pause to enter one of these warnings. What he is saying really is there are certain things that you need to take in and take seriously from what I've just been saying about our Lord Jesus Christ. There is a pause, and in this pause, he brings this, this warning. It is a warning, really, which could be put into two words. Be serious. Be serious. Now, that's a frequent warning in Hebrews. Not a warning to be somber, or melancholic, people frequently confuse these two things. He is such a serious young man. 
we mean by that? There is a warning in scripture about not being serious. The opposite of being serious is being flippant about the things of God and in one's attitude to the things of God. And we'll see what he means about that in a moment. But these warning passages have this as their basic concern. And throughout Hebrews you get this perfect biblical balance between encouragement and exhortation and hope on the one hand when the writer of the epistle is urging them to go on and speaking words of encouragement to them and holding great hope out before them and bringing them something of the joy of God into their lives and on the other speaking a word of solemn warning about the consequences of turning back. Now that's the perfect biblical balance. The trouble is sometimes that we are pushed over on one side or the other. Sometimes we become so concerned with the solemn warnings of scripture that we are driven almost into a despair. Sometimes we refuse these solemn warnings and we become superficial and shallow. But the perfect biblical balance is precisely what you find here. Now the warning here is a warning which really derives, as I say, from what, Je what the apostle has just been saying about Jesus in his supreme glory. If God has spoken to us, and if he has spoken not just through prophets or through angels, but through his own very Son, and if the Son has been placarded before us in all his exalted glory, as the one who is eternally with God and the creator of the ends of the earth, who sits on the throne of the universe, whom angels and archangels worship, who is the crown of all creation, to whom everything will one day come and every knee shall one day bow, then, says the writer, therefore, we must pay the closer attention to what we have heard. If this message has come to us through such a one as this, then he says the doctrine of Christ's glory, the reality of Christ's divinity, the shining majesty of his person are not mere doctrines, beloved, he says. They are some realities that ought to be burning in your life to make a difference to the way you regard the message of salvation. And that's not just the beginning of the message of salvation, but the message of salvation in all its fullness. If God has thus spoken, what an appalling thing it is not to regard what he is saying with the utmost seriousness. That's what he's saying. And the warning is about how we regard and react to what we have heard, the middle of verse 1. The message of such a great salvation, the middle of verse 3, or so great salvation as the authorized version has it. Indeed, the warning is a warning against making light, making light of God's truth. That's the warning. In fact, it's very interesting. 
The word used for neglect, you know that famous verse? It's one of the verses that almost everybody knows from Hebrews, incidentally. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Now the word for neglect is exactly the word that's used in Matthew 22 in that story of Jesus, of the men whom the king invited to his banquet. Do you remember? And what did they do with the invitation? Precisely this word. They made light of it. They made light of it. Now this is precisely what the word means. How shall we escape if we make light of this salvation? So it's a warning about carelessness. Warning against carelessness about the truth. Against an easy, ozy, unconcerned attitude to the teaching of God's word, particularly in relation to obedience to it. Now, I wonder if you catch the idea that there is here. I think it's something that we need to ponder a little. Because, you know, there is a tendency in certain areas of Christian life to do precisely what the scripture here warns us against, that is to make light of certain things. I uh, was speaking to someone some time ago not connected with St. George's Tron at all, and I am therefore at liberty to tell you of this, although I obviously wouldn't for the world tell you who it was. But I was speaking to someone who was telling me about a young man a student whom I saw growing in grace, going on, growing up, a divinity student, and I look to the days when God is going to use him mightily. And somebody else who has been a Christian, I would judge about five times as long as he, and is a respected member of one or two evangelical organizations, He said to me when this young man's name came up in discussion and I was speaking my heart about him and he said, oh yes, he said, but he takes things so seriously, he said. He gets so serious about some of these things. And you know, I know what people can mean sometimes when they say that. Maybe they mean that the person is becoming a bit melancholy. But I know what he was meaning, and it wasn't that. And I didn't say anything, perhaps I should, but what I felt deep down in my heart was, in God's name, what in all the world are we going to take seriously if we do not take God and his salvation seriously? Beloved, what are the things that we take seriously? And this is what the writer of the epistle to the Hebrews is speaking about. Are you in some sense, he says, tending to make light of the things of God and of the truth of God, becoming careless, easy-ozy about the truth? Do you know what it's like when somebody doesn't take you seriously? Do you know what that feels like? Well, some people find that, you know. 
and it's an appalling and frightening thing if we are not going to take God seriously. Now the striking thing is, you know, that taking God and his truth and his salvation seriously is the high road to joy, not to melancholy, but to joy. And the high road to despair, I have discovered, and I tell you from pastoral experience of so many people, the high road to despair and spiritual depression and disaster is not to take God seriously. That's the great lie of the devil. Now notice how earnestly the writer applies this to our conscience in three ways. The very word therefore presses this whole issue upon us of paying most earnest heed to the truth. Therefore, we must pay the closer attention to what we have heard. And it is the therefore which is significant. It was declared first, this message, verse 3, halfway through the verse, do you notice? It was declared at first by the Lord. Who is the Lord? Well, he is the one that he has been speaking about in chapter 1, the creator, the heir of all things, the one who is sovereign Lord over the universe. It is because of who he is that we must pay the more, the more earnest heed to what we have heard. Therefore, it is pressed upon our conscience further by the testimony with which God has surrounded what he has said to us. A threefold testimony, do you notice? In verses 3 and 4. Now the significant thing is, of course, that God does not need testimony to support and press upon us what he says. He shouldn't need testimony. We need testimony, and it's an evidence of our failure, isn't it? It's an evidence of the duplicity with which we live and speak so often. We need testimony to back up what we are saying. God has no need of testimony. His word is his bond. But in his grace he has given us a threefold witness. First the apostles in verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard him. And the whole testimony of the apostles is designed to undergird with God's authority what we are reading. Now we need to take the testimony of the apostles more seriously. I have often been saying this and it's an important thing. One great testimony God gives us of the truth of his word which is to be taken with absolute seriousness is that it is apostolic and he has committed his word to the apostles that means beloved that we are not free to say therefore ah well now that's what the apostle Paul says or that's what the writer to the Hebrews says and I happen not to agree with him about this God has given testimony and invested authority in his apostles and the testimony which is next to God's and given by God 
is the testimony of those who heard, that is, the apostles. Second is the testimony of signs, wonders, and various miracles in verse 4. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, the third testimony is by the gifts of the Holy Spirit which are distributed in the church. That is, the various gifts that you read of, for example, in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12 and Ephesians 4, the gifts of the Spirit that God has distributed, gifts of ministry, gifts of prophecy, gifts of pastors, evangelists, teachers, gifts of helps, gifts of speaking in tongues, various gifts that God has given within his church in the apostolic era particularly, given to testify to the validity of the word of God and the salvation of God in order that we might take it the more seriously. Now the point of all this is that apostles, miracles, and gifts are there for one thing, not to draw attention to themselves, but to draw attention to Christ and to testify to him and to his salvation in order that people might have it pressed upon their conscience that they will take this seriously. Now, have you grasped this? It was declared by the Lord. It was attested by those who heard him. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his own will. And the point of it is, of course, that all of these things are God's doing manifestly. This is particularly so of signs and wonders and miracles. Why did God do these signs and wonders and miracles? It was to bear witness to the fact that this was God who was dealing with men. That's the significance of the signs and wonders and the miracles. And it's a rather interesting thing that you get these signs and wonders and miracles at particular points, especially in the book of Acts, when God is beginning to make a new move into a new area, for example, in Samaria in chapter 8. And you get signs and wonders and miracles following the preaching of the word at every new advance. Why? Not that people might be taken up with signs and wonders and miracles or gifts but that they might see that God is attesting his word in order that men might not make light of it. Now we make light of God's word if we give all our attention to the signs and wonders and miracles and to the gifts rather than to what they testify to. That's an important thing to remember. Then again the third way that this issue is solemnly pressed upon us. It's not only by who it is who is speaking, therefore we must give heed by the testimony that's born, but by the solemn danger of making light of, not taking with great seriousness, regarding with carelessness the truth of God and the riches of his grace. And these dangers are, we will drift away. Now look at verse 1 again. Therefore we must pay the closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. 
Now, there are several warnings in this epistle about the danger of going away. We would, we would perhaps call it backsliding, would we? Departing from the Lord. The danger of something drawing you from him. Here in chapter 2, verse 1, it is drifting. In chapter 3, verse 12, it is falling away. Take care, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And then in chapter 13, verse 9, uh, this is extremely important. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. Drifting away, falling away, being led away. And in every one of these three cases where the phrase is used, it is because of a wrong attitude to and a carelessness about the truth of God. Look at chapter 3, for example, in verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, when you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Verse 12, Take care, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened. Now there is what we were speaking about on Sunday morning, the danger of being hardened to the truth and therefore falling away. The point is, you see, that you cannot be careless about the truth of God without immediately putting yourself in grave danger of drifting away from God. That's the fundamental lesson that he is teaching us here. And I want to say to you, therefore, that it is a solemn warning that we need to take great heed to, the warning against being careless about the truth of God, careless about our study of it, that's what verse 1 is speaking about. We ought to pay the closer attention. Now that means that whenever a carelessness in our attitude to the word of God at that level comes in, we are in danger of drifting away. Not just drifting away from orthodoxy or drifting away from a fellowship, that takes place too. These two things do often go together with it. But fundamentally, drifting away from God. And one can see this happening. This is not mere theory, beloved. This is the most solemn and awful fact that when people become careless about the truth of God, when they have an attitude other than the deepest possible seriousness about it, then they become in danger of drifting away. And the other carelessness is a carelessness about our moral obedience to it. He compares the message that was delivered by angels in verse 2, which is probably the law, 
which, as we were saying last week, Stephen tells us in Acts 7 was mediated by angels. If the message declared by angels, the law of God, the Ten Commandments, was valid, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Our relationship to this great salvation, therefore, has to be obedience, as was the relationship to the law. It is not only a mental seriousness which will result in an eagerness to study the truth. It is also a moral seriousness which will result in a desire to obey it. But you notice the other element, and that is not only the element of danger in drifting away, but the danger of the judgment of God. How shall we escape, verse 3, if we neglect such a great salvation? And he then goes on to compare the judgment of God with the law which went with every transgression of the law and the certain judgment that awaits us if we make light of the riches of God's grace. Solemn words which we need to take seriously. The way we take them seriously is by giving ourselves to that kind of serious attitude to the truth of God, which, as I say, leads us into true joy. Now, from verse 5, the author returns to the relation of Jesus to the angels. Do you notice? I said verses 1 to 4 was a, a pause, and it is. And from verse 5, he returns to this question of Jesus' relation to the angels. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. And as he returns to this theme, he deals with a difficulty which these Hebrew Christians might well find in what he was saying about Jesus being superior to the angels. And the difficulty was this, if you can follow it. And this has often been described as a notoriously difficult part of the epistle to the Hebrews. But I think it's important for us to try to grasp what it is that he is saying. If, as they believed, in this present order, the angels were superior to men, how could Jesus be what chapter 1 claims he is, and yet become man, and even suffer, and die? Do you see the point? The angels were superior to men. The writer of the epistle is saying that Jesus has a supreme glory all of his own, yet the Christian gospel hangs upon this, that Jesus was not only very God of very God, he was fully and entirely man and became bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh, how can he be said to be superior to the angels then? That was the question. Now in answer to this, the writer sets forth in chapter 2 the significance 
of the full humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just as in chapter 1, he has set forth the significance of the full divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the important thing really for us is not the relation of this to the angels. As we were saying last week, he has very little to say about angels. It's all about Jesus. He is exalting Jesus and glorying in Jesus as the perfect very God of very God. Now he is going to be exalting Jesus as the perfect man for us men and for our salvation. Now that's the significance of the passage from verse 5 right through to the end of the chapter to which we will not obviously come this evening. But let's look at it a little, because the doctrine of the divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ is an enormously important one, and we need to have this settled in our mind and understanding. But the doctrine of the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ is as important, and it is a vital part of our Christian salvation, that Jesus was not only very God of very God, but that he was a man in all the fullness of what that means. Now the first thing that the writer has to say to us from verse 5 is that God has a purpose and a destiny for man which in fact is far above his purpose and destiny even for the angels. And here you can see him beginning to answer this problem. How is Jesus made man and yet above the angels and above all creation if the angels are above men? Now he begins to say, God has a destiny for man. And here is where we come into the scriptures teaching about the purpose, the destiny that God has for men in his creation which lifts the significance of man's life into a new level altogether. And my dear friends, this is what so many people are needing in our generation. They are needing this biblical exposition of the significance and the destiny God sees for men in the universe. Because one of the great cries of so many people today is precisely this. They feel themselves alienated. There is a classical word in the thinking of so many people. Alienated from the world around them so that they have no sense of a real significance. That is what they're crying out for. And it is only the Christian gospel in all its fullness deriving from the doctrine of Jesus' humanity which can give us the picture of the significance God attaches to man. So he says in verse 5, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. That world to come is a phrase which really means the new age inaugurated by the coming of Christ. The new heavens and the new earth is how Revelation speaks of it. God has a plan and a purpose to subject the whole age, the whole universe, not to angels, then to whom? Verse 6. It has been testified somewhere, he says. One wonders if he perhaps was just saying, you know how the scripture says somewhere. It is in fact in Psalm 8, as you well know, that psalm which has these lines, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him, carest for him? It is translated here. 
It has been testified somewhere then. What is man? A great question. What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou carest for him? Then this, thou didst make him for a little while lower than the angels. Thou hast crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now that is God's destiny for man, do you see? And the psalmist is expounding this. We shall see in a moment he is expounding far more than this. But he is expounding this, that God's destiny for man is something infinitely glorious. He is designed to reflect the glory of God and to rule, to have dominion over the creation of God. He is the very crown and summit of God's creation. And this is the place that God has constituted for man in his universe. He was made to have dominion. Now the chapters you need to read as a background to this, of course, are chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis. Where you find God creating the whole universe and forming it and bringing it into being. And then he sets man at the very center of this. And he says to him, we have created man in our own image and after our likeness. And everything that he has made is clearly made with man at the center of the whole of his plan. Man is the one who is given dominion over God's creation. It is man who names the creatures that God brings before him. It's man who is put into the garden and God says, everything that I have made, it's for you, he says. And man is at the very center of it all. And he has been made for this, to reflect God's image and glory. Thou hast crowned him with glory and with honor. And that's his destiny. But then the writer of the epistle to the Hebrews goes on, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. But, and the but is the realism of scripture. That is man's destiny and man's dignity in the purpose of God. But, he says, we do not yet see man in this position. We do not yet see everything in subjection to him. What do we see instead? Instead of seeing man reflecting the glory of God and ruling the creation of God, we see man himself under a dominion. And that dominion that he is under is the dominion of death and sin and Satan. That's the real situation. Now you know as you look out over the world that you do not see man in this lordly position in the universe. He does not stand in the universe in dominion over the whole of creation. You see vestiges of it, you know, like some of these grand ruins. When you're away up the West Highlands in these beautiful areas of Scotland that some of you have as your native heath. When you go away up and see some of these beautiful castles and you see a former grandeur there. Here and there a sign of a buttress and a castellation that shows you the evidence of a glory that once was, but it's a ruin, a magnificent ruin, but a ruin nonetheless. Now that's man. That's man as he is today, under the dominion of sin and death and Satan. 
And he is able to control so much, you know. There are signs of that here, hints of this dominion that God has given him. Why he is able to control the flight of one of his, his own brothers into the outer space and to take him to the moon and land him there and then bring him back again accurately within a square mile to a certain part of the ocean. The amazing dominion that man shows in various places, but you know the one thing that he is unable to control is himself and his own behavior. And so you discover that it's possible at one and the same time to have men on the moon and hell on earth and man can't do anything about it. He is cowering in terror in case the very things that his wisdom and technology have created suddenly turn round and destroy him if somebody puts their finger on the wrong button. Now that's man, you see, as he is. We do not yet see all things put under him. So what do we do? Do we give ourselves to despair? Do we say, ah, oh, well, God had a great destiny for man, but he is now under the dominion and destruction of sin, which is destroying him? Alexander Solzhenitsyn, that great prophet of our time, whose voice needs to be heard more and more in the Western world, says, man in the Western world seems to have a will for self-destruction. Now, what do we do? Do we give ourselves up to despair like the existentialist philosophers do? Ah, not the child of God. He says, we do not see all things put under him, but we see Jesus. Now here is the point, you see. The answer to this is the man Christ Jesus, who came into the world and entered into that very dominion of death and sin, and by his mighty power broke through it, for death was unable to hold him, and was brought up out of the darkness of sin's condemnation which he bore and sits at the right hand of the majesty on high and is enthroned in glory. But you see what has happened? It is the glorified humanity of Jesus which is in heaven at the right hand of God. That's what's there. And what has he been doing? What has God been doing all this time? Well, listen to this. We see Jesus who for a little while was made lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, that's God, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through suffering. Who is this Jesus then now? He is the pioneer of our salvation. He is the perfect man who has made the perfect offering as the perfect high priest and has taken his glorified humanity into the presence of God. He is the forerunner who for us has entered in and his presence there is the assurance that the glory that is our destiny in God's purpose will be our inheritance by his grace one day. We see Jesus. That's what he says. 
Now, beloved, this is the glorious truth that is an anchor. He is like an anchor to our souls within the veil. And that is what holds the child of God in the midst of all the disappointment that man is to himself. It is in Christ who has become our brother. That is why, verse 11, he is not ashamed to call them brethren. He is our brother who has been made flesh with our flesh, so that he might destroy him who had the power of death and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to life-long bondage. Verse 17, Therefore, He had to be made like his brethren in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make expiation for the sins of the people. He has been made like us in order that we might be made like him. And one day we shall. And that perfect glorious destiny which God has for man is ours in Jesus Christ. That's the hope of the gospel. That is the assurance of the child of God. And meantime, in this world, God is engaged in bringing many sons to that glory. So Jesus by his coming, by his dying, by his rising, by his ascending into glory as the God-man has secured for us an eternal salvation and has entered into the destiny that one day we shall share with him And meantime, his perfect humanity is the pattern for what God is going to do for us yet in his grace. You're listening to Hear the Word of God with the Reverend Eric Alexander, a minister in the Church of Scotland for over 50 years. To access more Bible teaching from Reverend Alexander, visit hearthewordofgod.org where your generous contribution will help us sustain and grow this ministry. That's hearthewordofgod.org. You could choose instead to mail a check to this address, 600 Eden Road, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 17601, or call 1-800-488-1888. This program is a presentation of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. I'm Mark Daniels. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time for Eric Alexander and Hear the Word of God.